Today's TribCast is presented by WGU Texas, an online university created just for you with affordable degrees in business, healthcare, teaching, and IT. Find out why more than 20,000 Texans have chosen WGU Texas at texas.wgu.edu. And Walmart. In 2018, Walmart and the Walmart Foundation contributed $133.6 million to Texas communities. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are and Texas guys Hi, this is United States Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Well, I'm sorry I won't be able to attend this year's Tribune Festival because, of course, John Cornyn has expelled me from the state of Texas. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm just heartened that I'm still going to be able to listen to this week's TripCast. So, uh, listen, your host, Emily Ramshaw, is phenomenal. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Senator. You're welcome in Texas anytime. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, September 12th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly podcast on all things Texas politics and policy. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. I'm glad you liked that intro. You know, I tried to get the Serena line judge to do a... Uh, I'll take Serena next time. You want actual Serena? Yes, please. The actual Serena uh-huh. intro? Yeah, work on that. Complete with a smash can be, racket? That can be the last one before you die. I want to hear her call Evan Smith a thief. Hashtag thief. She probably already has. Executive <laughs> editor <laughs> Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. If you're tuning in live, you can send questions our way on Facebook and Twitter. We're ready to hear from you. Uh, So this is the last TribCast before the runoff for Senate District 19, the matchup of the Pete's uh, between former state uh, rep and former U.S. rep Pete Gallego, a Democrat, and Republican Pete Flores. Uh, Tell me about these candidates, how they got here in this race. Yeah, so this is the race to replace uh, convicted former state senator Carlos Oresti, convicted former state <laughs> Democrat senator. from good, San, San Antonio, who is still going through his own legal problems even after uh, giving up this seat. Um, and there was a special election on July 31st, the first round of this. There were, I think, four Democrats, three Republicans, one Libertarian. Um, and you know what, what was notable about that was that at the very end of that, the first round of the election, you had all the top Republicans in the state, Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz, Dan Patrick, all rally behind Pete Flores. And he ended up finishing first in that eight-way race. And Pete Gallego, the Democrat, ended up finishing second. They advanced this runoff. Uh, now, it's a, it's a Democratic-leaning district. Um, but Republicans think they have a sh- they you know continue to think they have a shot here just because it's this uh, kind of wacky low turnout special election runoff environment and because you have uh, you know some some Republican leaders Dan Patrick in particular uh, really going all in for Pete Flores we just had uh, some campaign finance reports that were due and Pete Flores I think reported raising uh, about over a little over three hundred thousand dollars during the most recent period uh, more than uh, one hundred sixty thousand dollars of that uh, was in kind contributions from Dan Patrick for polling for TV ads, the whole nine yards. And so you have the lieutenant governor really getting off the sidelines here and, uh, you know, obviously a top funder uh, to the Pete Flores campaign. And so that's that that's all to say that Republicans continue to be, uh, you know, somewhat optimistic that this is a, a seat that's within reach for them. Uh, you know, historically speaking, it's, it's a Democratic leaning district. And Pete Flores, I think, is, is the underdog uh, heading into Tuesday. Um, and then on the Democratic side, you have Pete Gallego, who is 
pretty familiar face in Texas politics, and he's actually running that way. He's running on the fact that, you know, after all this tumult in the district under under Carlos Uresti, I'm someone that you know. I represented this area in Congress uh, for a term, and then before that for a very long time in the Texas House. And so he's he's running on being the guy that you know, kind of the familiar face in this part of the state. I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Gallego wins this race at all. For the reason you said, San Antonio has been something of a special election shit pit over the last couple of years where Democrats, even when, <laughs> there, the are only, term. Even right. when there are only Democrats on the ballot, the Republicans end up winning. Um, and honestly, the momentum here is with Republicans who think they can sneak a win out of this special election against the backdrop of a Democrat like Uresti, who provide them with a lot of ammunition for why they need to change horses. Uh, you know, right now it's 2011 in the Senate, Republicans, Democrats. There are a couple of Republican seats that are in theory in play, Huffines and, and Burton. I don't think there are any others that we're aware of, at least right now, that are significantly in play. Not unless it's right. a flood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it would be a great hedge for the Republicans if they were to lose one or the other of those seats to have somebody back in the form of the special election win in this district. But there's really nothing, right, Patrick? There's no loss here for Patrick or Abbott or any other Republican to get firmly behind Flores. And that actually could conceivably push him over the top in a low turnout election. So it's, it seems like- Well, yeah, a, there's no political loss right. for them to you know just throw their name to him and say, I endorse him. But what's been more interesting is which which of those people are actually willing to put the weight of their well, political organization behind him. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've seen Dan Patrick do that. Um, you it know, matters more to yeah. Patrick as the presiding officer sure, of the Senate, of presumably, yeah. to have another member of the army. Well, and, if he, you know, if he and, lost a couple of seats, I mean, if the if November doesn't go his way, you know, if, um, if Don Huffines is in trouble in Dallas, if Connie Burton is in trouble in Tarrant County, you're getting dangerously close to eroding the supermajority that Dan Patrick counts on to um, run the Senate. Right. And they need they need 19 to bring a bill to the floor. It used to be right. 21. They've got 20. If Democrats hold the Uresti seat, and for whatever the reason we're somehow able to win the Huffines right. and Burton seats, now your Republican it gets, number is down to 18. It gets very very interesting. Right. So he's got he's got a personal stake in this race, just being a, a D or an R that might not be, you know, around in another race. In a in a regular election, this is pretty much Democratic territory or has been in Senate elections, although a lot of the statewide races in this district run closer than you yeah. might think. You know, the the stuff that's evident in the Heard district that makes it a swing district, you know, this district overlaps it quite a bit. It overlaps the old Gallego district, now the Pancho Navarro's district quite a bit, and there's a lot of Republicans over there. Mm -hmm. And I then, mean, of course, we're forgetting that the Sylvia Garcia Senate seat, last thing, is still in, in flux. Right. And you could begin a session without a Democrat in that seat. Yeah, that three-fifths rule is three-fifths of the senators in the room. In the room. And right. so if Sylvia Garcia is not actually in the room, then that helps the Republicans at least somehow mathematically. I don't want to do math here on the podcast. Yes, please don't try. I mean, you've been talking about the weirdness in San Antonio and special elections, but you know, we also have this weird case this week of uh, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar making waves for apparently inviting supporters to a fundraiser for Republican Congressman John Carter. He's the one running against challenger MJ Hager. What is going on there? Yeah, this was first reported, I think, by uh, Politico, uh, 
Playbook newsletter on Tuesday, uh, you know, Quayar, uh, who's a Democrat from Laredo, um, apparently Carter was having a fundraiser in his district or in the San Antonio area, and Quayar's political operation, or Quayar himself, sent out a, you know, a notice to political supporters saying, hey, I invite you to come to this event, this fundraiser for John Carter. At Mitiera. Um, right. right. Like, it's the San Antonio right. institution. Jokes on exactly. anybody who goes because the food sucks. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe, the whole, maybe the whole thing is a prank. This trip guest is not brought to you yeah. by <laughs> Meteora. Never be brought to you by Meteora. Right. Right. And, and you know, Quayar issued a statement, I think, to political or to us, and, and he, he basically, you know, he owned up to it, didn't make any bones about it. He said that, you know, I wasn't a host this event. I, I did attend and I was honored to attend. We need more in Congress of Republicans and Democrats uh, working together. Uh, you know, obviously this is remarkable because very rarely, especially in the heat of the general election season like we're in now, do you see, uh, you know, Democratic incumbents uh, you know, doing anything, you know, you could argue what, how much help he's actually providing here, but doing anything to appear helpful to a Republican member who is in uh, what I think a lot of people consider a uh, competitive race, if not, uh, maybe not in the top tier of races in Texas, but certainly a competitive race. He's, he's played this game before, you know, he was a Democratic member of the Texas House and then became Rick Perry's, I think, first Secretary, Secretary of State, State. Mm -hmm. when right. Perry was governor. And, you know, and Cuellar is also the guy who told me when he first went to Congress, he said, you know, it's really, really partisan up there. And I said, give me an example. And he said, we were at the orientation and I came out of the orientation to go to lunch and I started to get on a bus and somebody stopped me and said, no, this is the Republican bus. You're on the Democratic bus. So he knows what the stakes are. And he probably knows that if it's a Republican, if it's a Democratic House, his chances of a committee chairmanship or something like that probably yeah. just well, got he, he already out. serves on the appropriations committee with with John Carter. That's one you know work. Well, he does under the Republicans. Like, his right. response yeah. was something like, you know, what? He's my friend. Right. right. Yeah. There, there have been very few people over the years I've interviewed uh, as in this job at the Tribune where I've had a serious conversation to the effect of, "Are you considering changing parties?" Right. Mm -hmm. And I've asked Henry Cuellar that question before because it is plausible if if we woke up one day and read that Henry Cuellar changed parties. It would not be the most surprising news that day, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the most, I think, right. Abby Livingston wrote, you know, it's fair to call him one of the most conservative Democrats, votes not just in Texas, on but in the entire, tech, uh, entire U.S. House. Look, from M.J. Hager's standpoint, uh, you know, all this does is give her something to talk about. Um, we're, we're having M.J. Hager tomorrow morning here at the uh, at the new event space at the Tribune Studio at 919, and I've joked we're going to have... Uh, fake Henry Cuellar tattoos um, <laughs> as a giveaway, as a leave behind. Um, she, look, it's a, she, she has got plenty of momentum behind her campaign. To Patrick's point, this is a Republican plus nine or plus 10 district. Right. And yet we're actually talking about it openly as a potential Democratic yeah, and I believe her campaign and uh, at the bottom of our story, they issued a statement, and they kind of they didn't go after probably not surprisingly, but they didn't make it about Quayar. They just issued some generic response about John Carter hobnobbing with his his wealthy elite donors. Um, so she, I don't know how eager she is to make this. An oh, issue. I'm gonna I'm gonna see what I can get her to say. <laughs> I'm sure, sure there's some. I'm sure there's maybe. some staffer in her campaign calling Washington saying, "How are you gonna compensate for this?" Yeah, yeah right. right? They'll they'll figure out how to use it. So, I saw Abby Livingston. I thought tweeted yesterday that Quayar is the co-chair of the Blue Dog yes. yeah. Coalition. Which has poured a bunch of money into MJ Hager's campaign. I, I mean, the whole thing is just it's weird. weird. The yeah. whole thing is just and weird. We, you know, it's worth noting that for a better part, or over a year now, we've seen a similar theme kind of play out in the Senate race slash the race for the 23rd Congressional District where uh, Beto O'Rourke has, you know, has this de facto kind of political 
alliance with Will Hurd, where he won't endorse right. Will Hurd's right. Democratic opponent. And we've, you know, we've talked on here a bunch of times about, you know, certain Democratic activists kind of banging sure. their head on the wall. So you're saying everybody that. has secret yeah. friends? Is <laughs> so. Speaking of the of the 23rd, how's that uh, New York Times molasses poll. Oh, my yeah. God. I know the <laughs> I New York Times... It was up like a margin of error of 20 points. The New York Times were like live polling this and it took, I think after like, you know, several hours, they only had five responses to the poll. Right. You know, plus or minus one Oklahoma. I know, exactly. Right. Oh, well, before we move on, just quickly, Ross, what does, why does Pete Gallego want back in, back to this special election version? I, you know, I think he's got malaria. I think, you know, these, you know, people in politics like politics and they you know once malaria it, or amnesia well they get the they you know we'll see if he wins right if he wins it's malaria um you know people like being in public office and you know we see this over and over and over and over again you know he might be you know this might be the rejuvenation of it might be the the last ride we'll see but you know i think he just likes yeah. being in public office i think he's in politics yeah as i said earlier i think the message that he has is, is a decent case particularly for those for those voters who have had to deal with all this scandal and controversy it's you know put me in there i'm right. someone you know i'm not gonna i'm boring you know i'm not gonna get indicted in Fact two or three years says true yeah, <laughs> exactly and the flip side to that is what is the one that pe the republican is hammering which is that he's a career politician you know hungry for power so obviously it's kind of a, a double-edged sword all right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank another TribCast sponsor, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. The third annual Engage in Excel conference happens October 23rd through 25th in Houston. The event focuses on communities transforming behavioral health systems. Register by September 21st for a discounted early bird rate at engageinexcel.org. Uh, a couple questions we're getting on social media. Uh, Jake wants to know thoughts on the Texas 25 race. That's Roger Williams versus Julie Oliver. Patrick, any thoughts on that one? Uh, not in particular, but this is one of those races that, you know, we, <laughs> have, this kind of, <laughs> we have this kind of first tier of competitive congressional races in Texas, and then we have kind of a second tier, and this is based on kind of how closely we believe the national committees are targeting them. And then you have this this kind of, you know, third tier that I put Julie's race in there of places, you know, very Republican, uh, traditionally Republican districts where Democrats are, are running very spirited campaigns and, and working hard to tap into the kind of newfound enthusiasm that, that they're seeing in those districts. And so, um, you know, I think that that's, you know, I would definitely put it in that kind of that kind of tier. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, over the weekend, the New York Times broke a story about the federal budget director, a Trump ally, a Mick Mulvaney, conceding that Ted Cruz could lose to Beto O'Rourke. This obviously sent a few shockwaves across the Texas media landscape, not just because of the concession, but because of how Mick Mulvaney phrased this. Uh, what did he say about Ted Cruz? He said Ted Cruz could lose. He was trying to make the no, point. No, no, no. no, no, no. no. <laughs> he said he's just not likable. Exactly. No, he also said that Ted Cruz could I lose. I already he's, said that point. Yeah. That was my setup to this I mean, question. You, you just want to talk about the likability thing. It's I true. think having a beer with somebody in elective office is way overrated. Unlike you, I think likability is an important trait. Unlike you, I think having a beer is an overrated trait. Okay. <laughs> Unlike both of you, I'd like, I don't like being in drunk. the middle of this. Right. <laughs> no, look, look, I, I, I think what Mulvaney said in theory, what was interesting about it was not that he said it, but he said it privately, right? If it would be one thing if they were talking about it out loud in public, but he said it privately, and I think there's some, I think I think there's something really interesting about that that they're sort of whispering it. But then Politico the next day had a story that said, the headline of which was "Inside the Rescue Mission to Save Ted Cruz," like it was the raid on Entebbe or something, you know. <laughs> Uh, there is this conventional wisdom now that we have upgraded alarm to something approaching panic. I'm not sure that I'm believing it. 
We get a boring election going I'm, on. I don't, bl- I don't know a, that know, I believe it. We have a, I mean, we, the, you know, the up and down ballot is a little bit boring this year. You know, the governor's race doesn't look close. The the other statewide races, have, you know, um, don't look particularly close or particularly interesting yet. But you're, we're still going to hear from Erica Greeter. I'm sure, that. but but you know, and and there are reasons that they that they could become that. But right now, the the hallmark race is the top one. And it's polling closer than these races usually poll, so it's getting all the attention. And everybody down ballots worried about, you know, if something bad, if I'm a Republican, if something bad happens at the top, you know, acid rain will kill me. You know, why is Dan Patrick in the White House asking te- uh, asking Donald Trump to come to Texas? He wants to save Ted Cruz or he wants to make sure Dan Patrick's okay. Do you believe the polls in the Senate race? Do you I believe this reason. is a mid-single digit race? Are you asking him if he believes our own polling? Because yeah. no, 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 yes. no, no, no. At yeah, this point, there've been a lot. Put our poll to the side. There've been a lot more polls since then that have had this as a mid-single digit race. My question is, don't validate our own work. Do I you think, believe I, the polls? I think the the weakness in the polls right now is that they are of registered voters and not of likely voters, and we'll know who the likely voters are when we get closer. But the interesting thing in the polls that I do believe is that this is a much closer race than the governor's race. If you look at the, in every single poll, this, the margin in this race is half or so or less of the, of the governor's race. And, you know, it either says that some of these people are going to drop out or that there is such thing as a voter who votes for O'Rourke and then votes for Greg Abbott. You believe the polls? um, Well, I was going to note there was a likely voter poll that came out yesterday by Crosswinds uh, PR, which is has a decent track record of polling statewide races in Texas that did have it at, at three points. One of the first right. kind of likely voter polls that we've seen in this this season. Um, definitely, I definitely believe it's a single digit race. I don't know if it's a, a low, I wouldn't probably wouldn't expect it at this point to be a low single digit race, regardless of what the public polls say, but I would agree with the assessment right. that it's a single digit race, maybe mid to high single digits. So does, does likability matter? Because I mean, is likability something that makes Republicans vote for a Democrat in a Senate race? I mean, if likability matters so much, how did Donald Trump get elected? Well, Drake would be president, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> I think it's more likely that, you know, if, if, right. if likability, to the extent that likability plays, it's your voters <laughs> deciding whether to show up or not. You know, the, the biggest risk, you know, at least the public risk that they're talking about in the Cruz campaign is that Republican voters are a little complacent and sit home and say, oh, he'll win. I, they don't need me. And besides, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be like the rationale behind these billboards or these, you know, that you see going up where it's the, you know, George W. Bush right. saying something about Ted Cruz and there's the line underneath the stamp, like no one likes Ted Cruz. Or there's, yeah. you know, the the billboard with Donald Trump's own words about Ted Cruz. That, but who is that targeting? I is, think that- Is that targeting Republicans who are persuadable or no. Democrats who are not normally voting in a midterm? I think it's targeting Republicans to sort of urge them or encourage them to stay home. Right. And also, you know, I think it riles up the Democratic base. But I think those are ads that are aimed at Republicans, I think. And they this likability, again, they must believe this likability question makes a difference in races like this. I, I'm trying to t- it matters in this race to the extent that O'Rourke has effectively, has successfully and effectively turned the race so far into personality contest. Mm-hmm. And that's just, if you just look at the comparison between these two candidates, that's an air, that's terrain that O'Rourke is definitely going to be more comfortable on than Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz right. wants this to be, or at least he says he wants it to be an issues race. If you look at some of the advertising, <laughs> you no. may doubt that a little bit. But right. going back to my point, though, if, you know, O'Rourke has, if this is going to be a personality contest, that's, you know, that's not a good good place for Cruz to be. So he I, needs I, to shift that terrain. You've made a good point here. This is really congressman personality versus senator culture war. That's mm-hmm. basically this race. We're not talking about Syria. 
We're not talking about the issues by and large. There have been some issues that have come into this race. We're talking about immigration, and we're talking about We're really talking about punk rock, and we're talking about uh, wearing a dress, and we're talking about cussing. Skateboarding through Whataburger. Skateboarding. These are not issues. This is more, as you very correctly said, defining Beto before Beto gets a chance to right. define himself. Right. That's what this is. Right. And, and O'Rourke is keeping it largely positive. Correct. Right? Yeah, absolutely. All these ads I see during the Met game are all him with his arm draped around people and, you know, running from dime box to mule shoe well, and Well, and all like these that. nasty Ted Cruz, you know, the billboards are from this pack called FTC, which you can read between the lines on that acronym. I'm not going to curse on here because... Uh, Chip Roy well, might get mad at me. Mom might but, be listening to yeah. dad. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, well, but I think your work campaign is largely keeping it positive, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see if they ever feel the need or the benefit to descend down into the muck. It would be against brand for them to do that. That's not to say they won't. It's not actually against brand. This is how he beat Sylvester Reyes, by going really, really hard negative for a long period it's of against time. against this brand. But against, but against Ted Cruz, you know, back to the likability thing, he doesn't need to. Everybody knows Ted Cruz, and they right. formed an opinion about him. And that's why this is really about defining who Beto is, because you don't need to define Ted. Is it hurt Beto to go on um, Ellen DeGeneres and Stephen Colbert and to do that national thing? I, I seem to remember in previous races where you nationalized a Democratic candidate, whether it was Ron Kirk in 02 for the Senate or Wendy Davis for governor or whatever else, that ultimately those people don't vote. Those people send money. And it, it, they send money, but it just makes you look like a coastal elite, like the candidates of the coastal elites. Well, you'd better, you know, better to be a well-financed, you know, accused of that than to be non-financed mm. at all, right? Being a yeah. poor coastal elite sucks. I can speak to that. <laughs> Good thing you're not on I the I think coast. your war campaign just accepted that they're going to, you know, I mean, a long time ago, they probably accepted they're just going to get hit for that kind of stuff, doing mm. national media, right. fundraising wherever and, and whatnot. And, mm. and, you know, and they're going to counter that. How can you say this person has gone national when he is, you know, Right. Just finished up a 34-day road trip with Texas right. or whatever. So, How does the Mick Mulvaney stuff from the weekend, first of all, how has Cruz responded to it? Second, you know, does it affect Donald Trump's planned visit to Texas and this alleged giant rally we're supposed to see here for Cruz? Cruz commented on it while he was campaigning in two, uh, Saturday evening in Katy, and he just said something along the lines of, I don't care what, I think he referred to Mulvaney as some political guy in Washington. He said, some guy. I don't care what some guy in Washington just, said. Just the budget director, you know? NBD. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and a, and a former House Freedom Caucus member, right, I, right. I, I understand, who's, you know, that's cut from Seriously? the same ideological cloth and political cloth that Cruz is cut from. Um, but he just dismissed him as some political guy in Washington. He only cares what, what Texans have to say about the race. So, I, and I don't think it upsets any any plans that, that Trump may have in Texas. Cruz's response should have been, oh, wait a minute. Somebody from the Trump administration did not say my wife was ugly. This is an improvement. God. All right. All right. A couple of quick uh, additional questions coming in on social media. Eric asks, what about Congressional District 2? That's Dan Crenshaw versus Todd Litton. Anybody have a finger on the pulse with that That's race? probably second tier, right? You would put yeah, that I mean, this was the most tier. recent congressional district in Texas that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee added to their kind of battlefield with very firmly within that second tier of races. And so I think it's increasingly on the national radar. Um, but it's worth noting that Dan Crenshaw is already being kind of uh, no, this is not to take anything away from Todd Litton, who's obviously running a strong campaign to be even talked about in this context. But right. Dan Crenshaw is, you know, kind of already emerging as this kind of Republican rising star. And he's someone who I imagine the National Party would uh, rush to save very quickly if they're even a whiff of uh, any real competition in that mm -hmm. district on their side. There's also a tactical reason for the challenging party to say, hey, we're putting this on our list. 
here in early September is to see if you can draw any money into the race and any attraction into the race. And around the beginning of October, they'll make another cut and say, these right. are the real races, those are the fake races. This has been Abby Livingston's point back to the Senate race for a second, that all the money that is being deployed in service to the Save Ted Cruz effort is money not being deployed in other right. places. At a time when Democrats are trying to hold their own seats in places like Missouri and Indiana and Florida, this is money that is not being spent on behalf of Josh Hawley in Missouri and on uh, Todd Braun in Indiana and Rick Scott, although Rick Scott has all the money in the world. He doesn't need anybody's money. But the, the point is that anything that you distract from other races is positive. So you're correct. If right. they draw money into Todd Litton or they draw money into Pete Olson, that's another race that has popped in that up area, in the, in the second tier in Fort Bend County, um, then that's money not being spent somewhere else. All right, well, I feel like every couple of weeks we come back to the Tribcast and we say uh, we have another candidate for speaker, <laughs> but we have another candidate for speaker, Drew Darby. Ross, uh, tell well, us we a little. We have two. We have four prizes. Oh, two four more, price. right, since right. we did this last. Gosh, right. see, they're cropping up like crazy. So it happens so fast. Tell us about these two they, they, additional candidates. They grow up so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, these are uh, two candidates who've been in the uh, anonymous race for a while. You know, everybody expected Drew Darby to win. There was a lot of grumbling among some House members that Drew Darby was running a race without filing. Um, they always said privately, you know, probably sometime around Labor Day we'll make a decision. I think they made their decision around Memorial Day and, and declared around Labor Day. But So Drew Darby's in the race. He's from San Angelo. He's part of the, you know, he's generally seen as part of the, you know, um, Strauss crowd in the House. Uh, Joe Strauss, the current speaker. For Price has been a rising star since he got there. He's just one of those people uh, who got in and was immediately a player. He's from Amarillo. He's been expected for a while, and and this is shaping up to be kind of the race we expected. We've got seven official candidates now. We've got probably, you know, honestly, probably four or five more that I think are you know potentially could file. And you're getting to the place where you're. Um, I think you're going to start finding that new people into the race are finding that some of the voters here, some of the other members of the House, have committed. It's sort of like, you know, here comes Patrick Svitek into the race, and somebody says, oh, man, if I'd known you were going to file, I would have held my vote back, but I'm committed to Evan Smith. You know, there's right. going to be a lot of that kind of stuff. But, but please give me a cheesy yeah. scone to try to get that <laughs> yes. I, I think Smith entirely stalls at three votes, but, you know, yeah. that's just me. <laughs> I was going to ask you, but, Ross, but, but there's a lot uh, yeah. of that. You know, you're fighting for a limited number of voters here, and, you know, one of the things that's going to happen as we get all of these candidacies going is you're going to see clusters of votes appear. And those are going to be the trading blocks. Um, if Darby joins for price, you know, and they decide to unite behind one of their candidacies, maybe those voters come along. Everybody's trying to get into position so that on the day after the election, when they actually know who all the 150 voters are going to be, they can hit the gas and, and run it to January. Who's a more conservative yeah. candidate, Price or Darby? No one's. Patrick has a question to ask, and nobody's letting okay, him well, get a word in edgewise. Raise your hand, meat. What are you I was new to ask this? Ross, I was going to just. I'm, I'm generally curious. Do you think at this what you, what you said is that to say that it's too late for someone to get in and have a real shot at this point? And and is there someone at this point who could get in going at a point going forward and actually shake things up and, and be? I think there's. I think it gets. I think it gets harder and harder to get in later. Uh, I don't think it's too late, um, yeah. but you know the the problem is that all the votes are grabbed. The advantage to waiting until you're late is that all these little factions have formed and they can't get behind a candidate, and so you might be the the late savior who comes into this. The earlier you declare, this is arguing against that point a little bit. The earlier you declare, the more, the earlier you're a target. 
you know, and everybody can shoot at you. Uh, there are a lot of outside groups on both sides, on all sides, really, playing in this thing for various reasons. And, you know, if you take out a candidate or disqualify them or raise a sufficient question about them at some point, they could fall and somebody else could pop up. I think there's a lot going on. I don't think it's going to matter as much what the ideology of the candidate is, whether one's more conservative or not. I think it's going to matter more to each member. You know, there's two questions. Who's going to let me do the stuff that I really want to do and let me, you know, play? And at the same time is going to protect me from the votes I don't want to make. So, you know, there's a certain kind of vote that a lot of members in the House or in the Senate, for that matter, you know, look, if this comes to the floor, I'm going to have to vote for it. But I'd rather it didn't come to the floor and, and you're getting the corner office. So you that doesn't protect correlate to that. ideology. Not necessarily. The kinds of votes that you want to protect people from? Not necessarily. It could be a vote for this group in the industry or that group in an industry. It could be any number of things. So Somet you think that Sometimes it's a culture caucus, war thing. Sometimes it's the oil industry or the ag industry. The Freedom Caucus might be willing to vote for a Zerwas or a Darby, provided that Zerwas and Darby let them do the things they wanted to do, despite the fact that they view Zerwas and Darby as to the left of Trotsky. Well, there are things they want to I take think everybody on. in the Freedom Caucus voted for Strauss two years ago. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if they like that one back, if no, if in the last minute here, if you were narrowing this field to two, who are the who are going to be the last men standing? They're all men. I don't think we know yet. I think Tell me who else is in the race. It could be two men who aren't even in the race yet, or two men, no, well, men or women. What Ross is saying basically is that it's getting harder and harder to get in. So it's, it's getting harder and harder. So assuming I, you know, this is the list, who are, who do you narrow it down to? I wouldn't. Not playing. He's not a betting man. Oh, I'm I'm not either, and it's not because unlike Ross, I am willing to say things that make people upset. Ross, of course, is shrinking from his responsibility to do so. But I, uh, um, here's a, tell, me, tell me who wins on election day. Tell me the breakdown between Republicans and Democrats in the House, and I'll tell you okay. who is likelier to be Speaker and who will or will not get in the race. The morning after the election, I'm going to ask If it's 95-55, as it is now, that's one Speaker's race. If it's 85-65, it's another speaker's race. And if it's 80-60, it's a third speaker's race. If this is a tsunami and not a wave, if this is closer to 2010, and all of a sudden the Democrats now have 65 or 70, I absolutely think the composition of this race changes. True or false? Yeah, if you change the electorate, you change the election, sure. Right, I think so. Well, speaking of speakers, I want to remind you all that if you have the Texas Tribune on your smart speaker, you can subscribe to our daily audio brief. All you have to do is tell Alexa, Alexa, tell me the Texas news. Grown. It's badass. That was a terrific transition. Uh, that's all the time that we have this week. Thanks to WGU Texas, Walmart, and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, our sponsors. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Patrick, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. 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 Keep going. Georgetown? Georgetown. <laughs> Salado. Duncanville. Cedar Hill. Lancaster. Um, San Antonio. Um.